Good morning. Good morning. It is nice to be back after a couple weeks not here. And this morning, as God's providence would have it, it is Easter Sunday and we're naturally in the resurrection narrative anyway. Uh, we're in John chapter 20 as we make our way through John's gospel. Do you know there's no commandment to celebrate Easter? You can if you want to, but you don't have to. Nevertheless, it is usually my practice to deviate from whatever else we're doing and preach on the uh, resurrection on Easter Sunday, preach on the birth of Christ at Christmas, if only for the fact that it'd be distracting to a lot of people if, for example, we were looking at one of Ezekiel's prophecies on December 25th or something like that. So normally I conform to... Um, the cultural expectations and probably would have done that this morning anyway but here we are naturally in God's providence anyhow in John chapter 20 so please turn there in your Bibles we're going to be looking specifically at verses 19 to 22 this morning but I will read from the beginning of John chapter 20 just to refresh us about the immediate context as I'll be referring to some of what's happened in the chapter already as we focus in on verses 19 to 22 this morning. So listen as I begin reading at John chapter 20 and verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. 
On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When He had said this, He showed them His hands and His side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when He had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's pray again. Oh Lord, what a glorious chapter of Scripture this is. Lord, and whether we were coming to this in April or July or January, the truth is He is risen, and we're glad for it. Lord, it is life-changing, it is truly world-changing that Christ has risen from the dead. Since that is true, it changes everything. Oh Lord, help us as we consider this appearance of Christ to His disciples that first Sunday morning. Minister to us, we pray. Lord, would You do good to those who are already Your people trusting in You. Lord, would You bring to faith those who are not yet trusting, not yet in Christ. Above all, would You glorify Jesus. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. In the passage before us this morning, John chapter 20, verses 19 to 22. And incidentally, I'm going to take a whole week and preach on John chapter 20 and verse 23 next week, as you most likely have questions about that verse. But in the passage before us today, John chapter 20, verses 19 to 22, the disciples are confused and afraid. Remember that Mary's first report in chapter 20 and verse 2 was this. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid Him. It was that statement that Peter and John went to the tomb to investigate. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, when we read in verse 8 that John went in and saw and believed, we shouldn't interpret that to mean that he believed that Jesus rose from the dead. We should interpret that to mean that he believed what Mary had told him, what he was there to investigate in the first place, that they had taken Jesus' body and went and laid it somewhere else. He didn't understand In fact, John chapter 20 and verse 9 tells us that. He saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that He must rise from the dead. So at the end of John chapter 20 and verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes. They went back to their homes believing what Mary had told them. That someone had come and taken Jesus' body and moved it. And they didn't know where He had been laid. But Mary didn't go home. Mary stood there weeping outside the tomb. And these angels appear to her. And then Jesus Himself appears to her and says, Don't cling to Me. i got to go. I haven't yet ascended. 
But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that He had said these things to her. But remember, Peter and John just came from the tomb. So they had just gone home having verified that Jesus' body wasn't there. Mary stood there, weeping, emotionally distraught, and then minutes, hours later, I don't, I don't know how long transpired, but sometime reasonably soon after that, Mary comes back and says, actually, Jesus is alive. Well, the disciples surely wouldn't have known exactly what to make of this. So in verse 19, it's still the same day. John's at pains to emphasize that it's still the same day. On the evening of that day, what day? The first day of the week. Still the same day. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. This is the state they're in. They don't really know. Peter and John have gone. They believed Jesus' body had been taken, but then Mary came and said she's seen Jesus. They don't know what's going on. So they're hiding out behind locked doors. The disciples obviously weren't exactly clear about what was going on. They weren't exactly clear about the big picture. As we read already, they didn't yet understand from the Scriptures that Jesus must rise from the dead. They didn't understand yet that everything that was happening and everything that had happened had happened and was happening according to plan. In Acts chapter 4, later, which is weeks later, they pray a prayer which acknowledges that Herod and, Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel had simply done, quote, what God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. Weeks later, they come to understand that everything had been going according to plan, but right now, they don't get that. They don't understand what is happening. So naturally, they're scared. They were scared of the Jews who had pressed for the crucifixion of Jesus. Remember that it was only three days ago, and three days ago counting inclusively of Sunday and Friday. So really, by the way we count days, two days ago, on Friday, that the, the mob had been shouting, crucify him, crucify him. What if the crowd starts shouting, crucify them also, or us, the disciples would have been thinking. What if they're not satisfied with stamping out the leader of this movement, but they start investigating and figuring out who was associated with Jesus and calling for their crucifixion also. And then, there's good reason to think Pardon me, then there's good reason To understand what Luke tells us, that when Jesus appeared to them, they were startled and frightened. They didn't immediately take it as a good thing when Jesus came to them. In verse 19 of John chapter 20, we read that Jesus came and stood among them. 
and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad. But you see, there was this, Jesus had to say something and do something before they were glad. At first, when they saw him, they weren't immediately glad, you understand? And Luke tells us that they were startled and frightened. First of all, they believed that he was dead. So imagine if you were at home one day with the doors locked, and then suddenly there in front of you was one of your deceased loved ones. Would you immediately be glad and be like, oh, they're back? Or would you be startled and frightened? You see? They believed that he was dead. So Luke 24 and verse 37 says they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. But moreover, the disciples were startled and frightened, not just because they thought they saw a spirit, but also because they had all fled and abandoned Jesus in his hour of need. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. So when Jesus was being most a friend to them, being arrested and then going through this mock trial, this kangaroo court and being beaten, scourged, probably twice, as I explained a few weeks ago. At this point, Jesus was being such a good friend to them. He was laying down his life for his friends. But what were these guys doing? Not reciprocating, not laying down their life for him. They were not thinking of him, but they were thinking of themselves. They all abandoned him and fled. Sure. What about Peter? First, he drew a sword and cut off someone's ear, which I suppose the impulse was somewhat commendable, but obviously misguided. And nevertheless, by the end of that night, even Peter had denied Jesus three times. So we can't really say, well, Peter did it. Remember, he said, even if all fall away, even if all desert you, I will not. I'm ready to die with you. And Peter says, Jesus says, Peter, really? And sure enough, even Peter deserts Jesus. So all are complicit in this abandonment and denial of Jesus. And now here is Jesus in front of them. Sometimes in a movie or a book or something, characters will plot against another and make an attempt on his life. But he escapes and the plan is foiled. And then what happens? He goes around and gets revenge on everybody who plotted against him. And one by one, you see the conspirators fall. The tables are turned. The one they tried to kill wasn't actually killed. And he comes back. And things go full circle. And it's the conspirators who are killed. Is this going to happen now? These guys had abandoned Jesus. But here he is now in front of them. And first of all, that's scary because they thought he was dead. But second of all, 
there is reason for Jesus to be upset with them. Is Jesus there to mete out divine justice for their betrayal of Him? The first point that we should notice in this passage is the mercy of Jesus. This mercy is seen clearly in His statement, twice repeated, peace be with you. Of all the times that an expletive might be expected. After all, this is, this is truly what damn you means. Isn't it? You deserve to be damned to hell. Of all the times that someone might really justly be on the receiving end of a damn you. Or something worse. Jesus speaks peace to his ill-deserving friend. Peace be with you. This appearance of Jesus to his disciples reminded me of our study of Genesis 28. I don't know exactly when it was, I didn't look it up, probably a couple of years ago now, as we were working our way through Genesis in our evening series. When Jacob was running from Esau, many of you will recall that Jacob had stolen Esau's birthright. He had gone in pretending to be his brother, deceived his elderly father, therefore dishonoring him. He had taken God's name in vain when his father said, how is it that you found game so quickly? Jacob says, Yahweh prospered my heart. He had borne false witness. Who are you? His father asked him. I am Esau, your firstborn, Jacob said. And all of this precipitated by coveting. It's providential we read the Ten Commandments this morning, so they're fresh in your mind. There's at least four right there. Maybe more if we dig a little bit deeper. But this man had grievously sinned in this affair. Jacob was on the lamb running from Isaac's household because Esau understandably wanted to kill him. But Jacob couldn't outrun Isaac's God. And in Genesis 28, there is Jacob, presumably not carrying hardly anything with him because he used a rock for his pillow. Now even if you had a heavy coat or a sweatshirt, or a pair of track pants, or almost anything, you would put that down under your head instead of using a rock for a pillow. So here's Jacob alone, vulnerable, with nothing most likely over him, nothing to put under his head but a rock, and God appears to him. And as is also the case here in John chapter 20. Way back in Genesis 28. The one who deserves condemnation doesn't get it. There's not a word of rebuke. Not a word of condemnation. 
just mercy and grace. God begins by saying, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. And when Jacob heard these words, it must have struck fear into him. Because he knew that he had sinned. And if this is the God of the aging man that he had just deceived, then maybe it was time for a reckoning. But here's the very next statement out of God's mouth. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And you can turn there on your own time and read Genesis 28. But all God does in that encounter is make gracious promises to Jacob. It's as if God says to Jacob, I have been the God of your fathers and you have not disqualified yourself. I will be God to you also, notwithstanding your sin. And Jesus, here in John chapter 20, likewise affirms His steadfast love for His disciples. It's as if He says, I am still your friend, notwithstanding your sin. Greater love has no man than this, that He lay down His life for His friends. I was your friend in the dying, and I am your friend in the rising. I was your friend at the cross, and I am your friend at the empty tomb. And God in Christ will do the same for you this morning. Each and every one of you. God will take you as His own. Be a friend to you. Notwithstanding your sin. God in Christ is in the business of making and keeping promises with this reassurance attached. Notwithstanding your sin. Do you fear that you are too bad for God? Are you, are you on the run? Away from God. Have you been running for a long time? Afraid that one day the God who knows, the God who sees will catch up with you. What if you knew that God in Christ would meet you in mercy? What if you knew that God in Christ would speak peace to you? Notwithstanding your sin. Would you stop running? Would you take Him as your God? Would you let Him take you as His own? I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and whatever your name is. There is, of course, wrath coming down the line for those who will not stop running, for those who will not stop resisting, fighting, for those who 
don't have that one qualifying thing that qualifies us for God's grace. I'm speaking a little bit tongue-in-cheek here. Because there's a line in an old hymn that says, the only fitness He requireth is to feel your need of Him. There's another old hymn that says, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. There is wrath coming down the line for those who are running and resisting and fighting. Those who are coming with full hands instead of nothing in their hands to cling to. There is wrath coming down the line for those who don't feel their need of Him. Jesus said He didn't come for those who don't need a doctor. If you think you don't need a doctor, then Jesus has no peace to speak to you. You don't need Him anyway. Right? There is wrath coming down the line for those who are outside of Christ. But don't see the resurrected Jesus as primarily an angry man ready to take revenge on unbelievers. See him in the passage before us today rather as one who speaks peace to sinners. One who is ready to stand before those who deserve it the least. And say, peace be with you. Behold in the passage before us today, the mercy of Christ. You don't need to fear the inevitable day that Jesus will stand before you. As real as He stood before the disciples here in John chapter 20. That day is inevitable. But you don't need to fear it. If you've been running and resisting and have had your hands full of everything but Christ and His cross between now and then, He will indeed say, depart from me, I never knew you. But look at Him here in John chapter 20, standing before these sinful disciples and telling them, peace, peace, be with you will you let him speak these words to you this morning peace be with you peace be with you undeserving running sinful unfriendly toward Christ up till now unbelieving scorning Jesus Perhaps even mocking and scoffing at Jesus. Will you let Him speak these words to you this morning? Peace be with you. Will you believe what Jesus said earlier in John's Gospel? Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
Don't neglect the mercy of Jesus, but come to Him in faith this morning. Believing that He has mercy aplenty for sinners like you and I. That He's willing, in principle, if we're prepared to go, nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to His cross we cling, that He is prepared to say, peace be with you. This post-resurrection appearance to the disciples exemplifies this. And after all, that's what the cross was for. The reason for the cross was to give mercy to the undeserving. Don't think that God is unwilling to be merciful to sinners. To the contrary, Jesus died on the cross so that God could be justly merciful to sinners. As a just judge, God is unwilling to just look the other way and pretend He never saw the sin. God is not ignorant, nor is He naive, nor can He be bribed, nor is He corrupt in any other way. The judge of all the earth shall do what is right. Which means that He always punishes sin. And yet the Scripture tells us that He is merciful. Well, which is it? Does He always punish sin, or is He merciful? Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, presents this dilemma starkly. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Well, which is it? Will He forgive iniquity and transgression and sin? By definition, that's clearing the guilty. Or will He by no means clear the guilty? In which case, He won't forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. Which is it? The answer to this dilemma is yes. We perceive the question as an either-or question. Either he will by no means clear the guilty, or he will forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. Either he will always punish sin, or he is merciful. We perceive it as an either-or question because we can't conceive of how God could do both. But the infinite wisdom of God is on full display at the cross, where God by no means cleared the guilty. And yet forgave iniquity and transgression and sin. My sin has been punished, you realize? At the cross, I stand forgiven. Because at the cross, Jesus paid it all. You see, Jesus volunteered Himself in accordance with the Father's will, to be punished in the room instead of sinners as a substitute so that God could justly punish sin and yet proclaim peace be with you. 
to sinners who deserve to be punished. Behold the wisdom of God at the cross in coming up with a plan like this. Behold the mercy of God at the cross. The cross is the reason why Jesus could come to undeserving sinners in John chapter 20 and say, peace be with you. The cross is the reason why Jesus can come today to you and say, peace be with you. Believe and trust in the mercy of God given us in Christ Jesus this morning. And receive Christ's words as your own declaration of reconciliation with God. Peace be with you. Leave here believing. Christ has spoken peace to me. Christ has said to me, peace be with you. Now what else did Jesus say and do to the disciples here in this passage this morning besides just speaking peace? After all, He didn't only say peace be with you and then leave. If He had done that, the disciples would have remained in their confused state. Okay, I guess Jesus isn't mad at us. But what now? Will He appear to us again? What are we supposed to do in the meantime? Remember that these guys didn't have clarity about what was happening, what was going on right now. So if Jesus had come and said, peace be with you, and then just left, it would have at least alleviated their fears that Jesus was out to get them, but they'd still be just as confused. Remember, they didn't yet understand the plan of God that was unfolding in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so... Because Jesus knows this, that they need instruction about what will happen next, Jesus establishes expectations. He said to them in verse 19, Peace be with you. When He had said this, He showed them His hands and His side, convincing them that He wasn't a spirit. In Luke 24, uh, we read also that He ate a piece of fish to prove to them that He wasn't a spirit. This is the same event. This is what's happening here. Peace be with you. And He's reassuring them that He's risen and not just a specter. As this process transpires, then we read, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. There was this process of coming to perceive, oh wow, this really is Jesus. He really is risen. And when they finally got that, they were glad. And understandably so. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. And then Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when He had said this, He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. We'll look at verse 23 next week. God willing. But what happens here in verses 21 and 22 is not a private Pentecost, nor is it a private Great Commission. Rather, it is a rehearsal, like a wedding rehearsal, for both Pentecost and the Great Commission. Remember, 
that in Acts chapter 1, which is on the next page of your Bible, most likely, so it comes after in terms of being on the next page, but as we know, the Bible is not always organized chronologically, so theoretically the next page could be before, but in this case, that's not the way it is. Acts chapter 1 is set several weeks later, after John chapter 20. So Acts 1 truly does come after John chapter 20, both in terms of the order in the Bible, but also chronologically. The events in Acts 1 happen several weeks later. And remember that in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, Jesus says that the disciples ought not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. So, in view of Acts 1, did the disciples re receive the Holy Spirit in John chapter 20? No. And were they sent out immediately in John chapter 20? No. So what's happening here in this passage, since we know that the actual reception of the Holy Spirit and the actual sending happened several weeks later, What's happening in John chapter 20 then is Jesus is explaining to them and rehearsing for them what is to happen next. Like a bride and a groom are helped by a wedding rehearsal to know and to understand what is going to happen and how everything is going to play out. Even though they're not married at the end of the wedding rehearsal. So the disciples are helped by this encounter with Jesus. It frames for them, what now? What next? What's going to happen? What's the nature of this phase? Where are we at in the unfolding plan of God? Jesus rehearses with them what phase they're entering. Though they're not actually filled with the Spirit, nor immediately sent out as a result of this encounter in John chapter 20. Jesus is teaching them because He wants them to be reassured of His love and His mercy for them, not so that they can enjoy it behind locked doors for fear of the Jews for the rest of their lives. Remember, that's where Jesus meets them. The place where they were was locked for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them. Jesus wants them to understand that yes, He has mercy for them. And yes, He loves them still, even after they abandon Him. But Jesus' mercy is to be proclaimed to the world. Jesus' mercy isn't to be kept behind lock and key behind locked doors. 
They need to understand that God so loved the world that He sent His Son into it. And the Son so loved the world that He sent His disciples into it. Look at verse 21. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Remember the words of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 and verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And remember that according to that same prayer, there are those who God knows will believe in Jesus through their word. Remember, all that the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me. But as Paul teaches in Romans, how are they going to believe in someone that they never heard of? And how are they going to hear unless someone preaches to them? How is someone going to preach to them unless they're sent? Jesus didn't rise for the disciples in front of Him in John chapter 20 alone. Jesus rose for all who would believe in Him through their word. And so they need to go. They need to make disciples. How far? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. All nations. And how will a bunch of guys who abandoned Jesus in His hour of need possibly accomplish this? They will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. They will receive the Holy Spirit. John chapter 20 and verse 22. As God promised through Zechariah many years earlier, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit. By God's Spirit, the original disciples go... By God's Spirit, the whole church, universal, around the world, and in every age, is to go. It's an inference which is necessary for us to draw. How could the disciples alone go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth? How could 12 or 70 do this? How could they make disciples of all nations? How could they reach those in every tribe and language and people and nation? So you see, this sending is not just for these disciples alone in John chapter 20, but it's for everybody who believes in Christ Jesus, everybody who is a recipient of the mercy of God, everybody for whom Christ was sent into this world has been sent by Christ into the world. It seems a daunting task, doesn't it? How can we, just us ordinary people, this tiny little church here in Barbados, and there's so many questions that we have, so much that we don't understand about doctrine, and so we got sin in our own lives, and problems that we're all dealing with, and what a monumental task for ordinary people like us to go do. 
How can we go into the world redemptively like Jesus came into the world redemptively? How could we be sent as He was sent? Jesus gives us both the why and the how in this passage. We should go because we have been sent. As God so loved the world and sent Christ, so Christ so loved the world that He sent us. That's the why. His mercy is not just for us. It's not for us to keep behind lock and key, to hide away for fear, or for whatever other excuse we might offer up. How can we accomplish such a great task? That's the why, this is the how. Not by might, nor by power, but by God's Spirit. Just like the original apostles, and I mean this in no way to dishonor or disrespect them, but just like they were just a bunch of bumbling sinners who were given the Holy Spirit. And as we read later in Acts, turned the world upside down. So we're just a bunch of bumbling sinners with the Holy Spirit. And it's God's plan through what Titus says is the foolishness of preaching. Because we just go out there and just proclaim in the power of the Spirit, the mercy of Christ. We just tell people, man, about Jesus risen from the dead and saying, peace be with you to a bunch of people that didn't deserve it. And we tell them, hey, that could be you too. And somehow just through this, God in Christ is reconciling the world to Himself. Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 17 has a real interesting statement. Paul is writing to the Ephesian Christians and he says, he's speaking about Jews as being near and Gentiles as being far off. And he says in Ephesians 2 and verse 17, And Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Do you realize that Jesus never made it to Ephesus in the course of his earthly life? And so how did Jesus preach peace to the Ephesians? You realize it was through those who were sent. So as the Father sends Christ into the world, Christ sends us into the world. Christ goes with us. And by His Spirit, Christ preaches peace to the world. This is the amazing thing. Lo, He is with us always as we go make disciples of all nations. We just believe this message that Christ has mercy not only for us, but for the world. And we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit that Christ will preach peace as we go out there and do, what, do it humanly speaking, we believe that somehow God's at work redemptively in and through us in Christ preaching peace to those who are far off. So go this week, into this week with the goal and this provision 
in the forefront of your mind. Christ has given us a task. Even so, I am sending you. And Christ has made provision for us to do it. Receive the Holy Spirit. Speak redemptively then with your family, with your friends, with your classmates, with your pupils, with your co-workers. There is a mission. Christ has mercy and peace. He wants it proclaimed around the world. And it's your job to do it. And there is a Holy Spirit. He is with us and He will help us. The resurrection isn't the end of the story of Christ's grace. In some sense, it is just the beginning. Christ has done and provided all that is needful for the nations to be gathered in. Now it is our task to go in the power of the Spirit to a lost world with a message of the mercy of Christ.